welcome to another MLEX podcast. I'm Laurel Henning, Senior Correspondent at MLEX, and speaking to you today from our Sydney offices. Joining me for today's podcast and dialing in from Melbourne is Australasian Managing Editor James Paniki. Hi, James. Hello, Laurel. Last week was perhaps the busiest week MLEX's Australia-New Zealand operation has had to date. Not only were we keeping readers updated on changes to the Australian encryption bill that lawmakers adopted in a last-minute move at the end of last year, we were fielding multiple updates on merger deals as well. So we had the scrapped Alstom Siemens deal, Bingo Dialer Dump and DLF Seeds, PGG Rights and Seeds, just to name a few. And James, we were tag-teaming on all this coverage while you were in court most of the week working on not one, but two court cases. So two court hearings, same Melbourne court, same judge, and initially they appeared to be about the same issue, gun jumping. Walk us through the first of those two lawsuits, the one involving local biomedical company Cryocyte, and maybe you could give us just an elevator pitch style explanation of gun jumping as well. Okay, let's do that. Look, first up, we should explain, particularly for our listeners in the EU, that Australia and New Zealand have a voluntary notification process for mergers and acquisitions. So it is totally up to the merging parties whether or not uh, to notify. If the deal raises competition concerns later on, it's essentially their problem. So it's their decision, their problem. So the expression gun jumping is a little bit different uh, for us um, down here in the Southern Hemisphere, it doesn't refer to jumping the gun on the regulatory process, it's about jumping the gun on the completion of the deal, which may or may not include the regulatory process. So um, if and when two companies planning a deal reach anti-competitive arrangements before the deal has been uh, finalised, before the relationship has been consummated, then uh, they're in violation of uh, Australian competition laws. And that's what's happened in the case of the company that you mentioned, Cryocyte, which is a Melbourne-based um, publicly listed biomedical company. It specialises in the storage of cord blood tissue, which is tissue from uh, the umbilical cord. So this material can get stored and set aside for possible uh, medical problems later on uh, in life. That's essentially what uh, this uh, this company does. Okay. And ultimately, the deal between uh, the 2017 deal between Cryocyte and its rival Cellcare, that fell through. But the lawsuit you've been following since last year is about the agreement the two companies put in place ahead of what they expected at the time was going to be a successful deal. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's been referred to as Australia's first gun jumping antitrust case because that written agreement between the two companies uh, was, and I mean, the federal court has now confirmed this, it was a textbook case of anti-competitive gun jumping. Uh, It also uh, proved to be a fascinating case for what it tells us about other uh, antitrust lawsuits underway at the moment in Australia, which is why this has been watched so, so keenly. Uh, very briefly, uh, midway through 2017, Cryocyte agreed to sell its business to Cellcare. Um, the deal was worth three million uh, Australian dollars. Uh, they decided not to notify the regulator, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, um, even though they were the only uh, two companies offering that service. But that again was their entirely their prerogative. Uh, instead, what they did is they ploughed ahead with an agreement uh, in which Cryocyte agreed to refer any new customers to Cellcare, uh, and apparently that is indeed what occurred. Now, this agreement was um, also highly unusual because it went as far as detailing what the parties would do if the ACCC were to get wind of the deal, which ultimately is what happened. I mean, the, the ACCC did find out about it. And the regulator took the initiative um, to investigate it, to to launch a probe. Uh, 
and it quickly concluded that a there uh, should um, it should uh, not be allowed to proceed so the deal needed to be stopped and b that the agreement uh, between the two companies amounted to a case of gun jumping uh, and they decided the regulator decided to take court action against cryosite but not cell care so just cryosite now the reasons for the exclusion of cell care uh, remain uh, unclear to this day. And their approach to, even after the regulators sort of showed interest in this agreement that they'd, as you say, they'd ploughed ahead and, and made this this deal on how they would um, work together or the anti-competitive parts of that deal had attracted regulatory attention as well. But they, they didn't really backtrack from there, did they? No, no, they didn't. That, that, that's right. Within months of uh, signing, they amended uh, this agreement to scrap the gun jumping provision. Uh, the interesting part of that is that the judge in the court case, Jonathan Beach, um, remarked both in court and in his final judgment about how the companies had brought in external lawyers to draft this document. Now, the the judge seemed to be slightly puzzled that a lawyer, presumably a lawyer with some understanding of competition law could be essentially stupid enough to draft this kind of a document in the first place. Uh, sadly for us, we've, uh, we haven't been able to establish which law firm was involved, which would have been a, a wonderful piece of gossip for us. Um, another, another important part of the story uh, that I forgot to mention is that Cryosite, um, whether, whether or not this was part of the initial agreement or it did it off its own bat, it actually decided to not take on any new clients. So in other words, it shut down part of its operations. So the ACCC commenced a civil lawsuit against Cryosite um, in the federal court, and essentially it was all over before it began. I mean, the the ACCC reached an agreement uh, with the company late last year, and they simply turned up uh, in court to tell the judge that they'd agreed to a fine of just over 1 million Australian dollars. That's about 750,000 US dollars. And it's the size of the penalty that, that raised a few a few issues as well. It kind of opened a bit of a, a can of worms uh, when that happened. The court ultimately accepted the ACCC's recommendation, um, although the judge would have been free himself to impose a fine of 10 million Australian dollars for each one of the three offences he identified. So that, it, it's completely, I mean, two ends of a spectrum there in terms of the size of possible penalties that could have been imposed. Yes, from 1 million Australian dollars to 30 million. Uh, now, look, this, I mean, this was an incredible reversal of roles. The ACCC, uh, as you well know, has been uh, campaigning for the past year to encourage uh, federal court judges to impose higher penalties. Now, the way it works in Australia is obviously the ACCC doesn't, uh, unlike other jurisdictions, that the regulator here doesn't impose fines directly. They simply recommend fines to be imposed by the court, then the court judges have, you know, absolute um, discretion as to whether or not they impose the fines that have been recommended. Now, uh, they've uh, the ACCC has been campaigning for higher fines through public campaigns. Uh, they've highlighted uh, international reports showing that Australian penalties for competition law violations are, in fact, the lowest in the Western world, to the point that uh, they're no longer seen as a deterrent, but are seen as part of the cost of doing business in Australia. That's the... Uh, the, the catchphrase that um, the ACCC has always returned to. Uh, the ACCC has even um, appealed penalties that it considered too low. Uh, and look, I mean, any of our subscribers that are interested in this can uh, peruse the entire case file on this stuff. I mean, we've 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 documented this uh, process, this campaign quite well. Uh, yet this time, it was a judge, um, Jonathan Beach, who was saying in court, "Look, look, guys, I can see." Uh, I can see that you want me to impose a very low fine here, but I can't understand how that is going to 
help deter future behavior of this kind. Yet the ACCC appeared uh, totally okay with that. The judge ultimately went along with the ACCC's recommendation to impose a very low fine. Uh, it was just, um, you know, given all of this background, it was just a highly unusual uh, situation. And and what's more, the, I mean, the, the most annoying thing for us about the case not getting fleshed out in court is that there are so many uh, competition questions that ultimately weren't answered here and, and probably won't won't ever be answered. And that penalty, the size of the penalty and the discussion around that in court on this case, it sounds a little bit to me like the ACCC in its recommendation on the penalty there wasn't really practising what it's been preaching in terms of penalty sizes? Yes, I mean, look, there were plenty of theories going around as to why that was. Uh, The company itself had been running at a loss for a couple of years. It had been, um, you know, losing quite a lot of money. The question is, would it have been able to repay the penalty um, or would that have uh, ultimately forced it into liquidation? Uh, These are all interesting uh, questions, but the question for a regulator is whether or not it needs to take into account the ability of the company to repay its fine before imposing the fine. And I mean, there's nothing to suggest that the ACCC needs to care about any of these things, but it was certainly an issue that was bubbling away in the background. Plus, this obviously provides, this company provides a very important service for many people. Whether or not you want that kind of a company to enter into liquidation is another sort of a broader social issue, I suppose. Yeah, lots of philosophical questions there as well about sort of the consequences of your anti-competitive action, I guess. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, we could go, we could talk about that for a while. Um, let's move on to the other court case that you've been following. Um, and that involves two rail companies, Horizon and Pacific National. Um, there are a few similarities here with the Cryosite case in that this was initially at least um, a gun jumping prosecution. So tell us more about the case and what exactly was being discussed uh, just last week. Yeah, so look, it certainly did begin as a gun jumping case. Most of the lawyers I'd spoken to were certainly describing it that way. Now, in just a few words, Horizon is a logistics and rail transport company. Pacific National is a rival company in the same space. Um, they both operate in the northeastern Australian state of Queensland. Horizon uh, operated a number of uh, facilities, including the uh, Acacia Ridge intermodal terminal and intermodal in this case just means a place where trucks can line up as trains are unloaded or loaded Uh, but this is also a a particularly important facility because Queensland this is way too much detail but Queensland uh, (laughs) Queensland operators big on on um, detail I'm big on detail Queensland railways um, operate on a narrow gauge whereas southern states have a standard gauge and this is the uh, facility where those two different worlds uh, can meet okay. and um, and interconnect. Now, in 2017, Horizon announced that it was getting out of what it described as loss-making facilities. A few companies uh, bid for these facilities, but Pacific National's uh, 220 million Australian dollar bid was ultimately successful. So uh, there was a deal put in place, and that is the deal that um, that we're talking about today. And and also that's where the ACCC alleges the merging parties had jumped the gun. The jump the gun. Yeah, initially that was certainly the. Uh, the argument. Um, this is now. This has been a massive lawsuit that's been uh, going on in the federal court. It, it, it involved the um, all Australian tradition of hot tubbing. That's when a bunch of experts are put on the stand. Craig, you've got gun jumping, gun hot jumping, tubbing. and hot tubbing. Yes, indeed. This is one-stop uh, shop of competition no, jargon it's, here it's, today. It's uh, it's lots of fun uh, in in the federal court. This is when a whole bunch of experts uh, are called in. They're quizzed by the judge. Uh, and the lawyers working on the case. There was, I think, two or three days worth of hot tubbing. 
Uh, and look, any of our subscribers who care enough about this kind of uh, granular detail are welcome to go to our case file. But initially, the lawsuit was going to focus on communications that took place between the two sides behind closed doors. Now, all of that was abandoned by the ACCC at the very last moment. Instead, the regulator recast the case as one of market access. So the allegations were uh, and and are still that Horizon had either excluded or hindered a third party, which is a company called Cube, Q-U-B-E, Cube, from its Acacia Ridge terminal. Now, that led to some fun and games in court last week because Cube's managers alleged that Horizon had prioritised other companies' trucks as they lined up to the facility, leaving Cube's trucks parked out on the street. Now, to debunk this theory, the lawyers for Horizon and Pacific National showed up with aerial shots of the facility to prove that the road leading into the terminal wasn't large enough for trucks to park in it. That led um, other extremely well-paid lawyers running to the printer to get Google Street View images to show that, yes, there was enough room enough room in the street. Um, now, if anyone cares enough about this, they can always um, go to Google Maps and check out Kerry Road in the Brisbane suburb of Acacia Ridge. They can join <laughs> in the fun and decide, <laughs> yeah, decide how, how wide the road actually is and they can guesstimate whether or not a truck um, can park in there without blocking access. But that wow. essentially is what the case uh, came down to last week, which is a bit of uh, well, a there's bit an of argument, there's a way. Very yeah. serious thing. Crikey. Yeah. And, and so, but also there was lots of, I mean, it sounds like there was lots of drama in the courtroom, but there was lots of drama in the lead up to that court case. Not only did the ACCC oppose the deal, but it even obtained an injunction to stop Horizon closing facilities. Yeah, yeah. Look, this is the extraordinary part of the story. The ACCC forced uh, these assets to operate. So um, Horizon had said, no, no, we're going to shut them down because they're, we're losing money. The ACCC obtained this court injunction and forced these assets to remain operational um, and they did that because they just didn't buy the argument that these assets were loss-making, they could only be sold to Pacific National. Uh, and ultimately, the ACCC was was vindicated because eventually the assets were acquired by another uh, logistics company, which is Linfox, which is a very well-known Australian um, uh, transport logistics company. And that happened uh, with the regulator's blessing, so the, the, the ACCC signed off on that, uh, on that Linfox deal. Uh, but the, the the issue of a company closing down business before a merger or an acquisition has been finalised is clearly problematic for the regulator. Now, I mention this purely because you and I have been uh, following another merger, which is that between Australian phone company TPG and Vodafone Hutchison mm. Australia. Yeah. This deal, uh, as you well know, has been encountering uh, considerable regulatory resistance um, and TPG announced recently that I can't remember if you reported on this or if I did, but it, it, it announced it's all a big blur. But it, it is at this stage. It announced that it was going to abandon its mobile network rollout and focus on a very different part of the business. Now, there might be very good business reasons for this kind of a decision, but I think the Horizon Pacific National deal is a good reminder that making dramatic decisions about the direction of your business in the midst of an ACCC regulatory review does lead to further complications and can lead to further heartache further down the track. 
Yeah. And actually, that, yeah, it was a really, that's an interesting merger. That was an interesting decision. It's causing a lot of discussion in Australia, even, I mean, going into the realms of the encryption bill discussions that are going on in Australia. We can talk about that another time or, or later as well in terms of, um, in I think, industry experts on the encryption bill in Australia. So completely different issue, talking about the unintended consequences of legislation as well in terms of, I think, the government's decision to block Huawei and then how that perhaps led to TPG's decision on its um, on its mobile network. Yeah, and the TPG thing has become fascinating for the, for that reason. So there are all of these underpinning competition issues, but there's also the overarching security issue and the way in which security considerations in Australia have played a part uh, in in the management of what should be a sort of a black and white competition issue. I mean, this is a a great time for a competition reporter to be alive in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> and while we're on this competition, honestly, I'm just going to veer us off in a, in a slightly different direction now. Um, you wrote last week about a joint research paper by the Australian Productivity Commission and New Zealand Productivity Commission. So it was a joint, a joint research paper by the two countries' top economic advisors, which said Australia's world-first study of digital platforms, um, so talking about Facebook and Google, for example, is, underst- is underestimating the costs and consequences of regulatory intervention in online markets. What kind of regulatory intervention were they talking about and what are the costs as they see it? Okay, well, as as our listeners know, the ACCC has undertaken this review of digital platforms to determine whether there are competition issues that need to be addressed in terms of the uh, platform's impact on the publishing, media and advertising industries. Now, we've been following this um, for quite some time, the whole world has been taking a, an interest in it, and in no small part because the interim report put forward some uh, very strong regulatory ideas. Now, as you said, Australia and New Zealand's top economic advisers got in on the act. They, I mean, they're totally separate, obviously, from the ACCC, but they wanted to express their opinion. Uh, they were highly critical of the ACCC review, saying that increased regulation um, comes um, at a cost, particularly to small and emerging businesses. So the report, uh, look, I mean, this report is a fantastic read. Uh, We've uploaded it to our system and anyone with an interest should uh, go through it. It gets stuck into regulation. It, it, It essentially says that it's okay to talk about greater regulation, but uh, you know, who pays for it ultimately? Where does the burden lie for keeping up with this kind of greater regulation? It gets stuck into the EU's um, General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, as an example of when regulation, in this case, obviously, privacy regulation becomes too costly to be considered worthwhile. Now, the report uh, suggests that, uh, for example, the EU's so-called right to be forgotten Um, That's a right uh, to have uh, reference to yourself expunged from searches is totally uh, unworkable. And uh, this is the work of Australia and New Zealand's Productivity Commission. So they are extremely reputable um, economic advisory bodies. And this kind of comment coming from them has to be taken uh, very seriously. And that's really interesting considering as well there was a submission earlier this month to New Zealand's parliament from the Asia Internet Coalition, which for anyone unfamiliar with them includes Amazon.com, Facebook, Google, just to name a few of their of their members. Um, and the submission was on the country's ongoing privacy law update and raised questions about uh, exactly that, about the right to be forgotten. Well, maybe, I mean, we should, we should expand on that. What were they, what were they arguing exactly? So they said that a right to demand the removal of lawful and accurate information from the internet um, 
it raises questions about fundamental human rights in their words in terms of it throws up questions regarding our rights to access information to access lawful and accurate information and this issue was a big deal in europe wasn't it exactly the industry group actually uses an example in their submission of a spanish case um, on which europe's highest court ruled in 2014 um, the case related to a spanish citizen mario costea gonzalez demand who demanded to have his name uh, delisted in urls referencing articles published in the spanish newspaper la vanguardia in 1998 the court ruled uh, in favor of costea in 2014 um, but it's it's been a case that has a, a real wide-reaching ripple effect because Google was still appealing the decision recently, um, with Spain's highest court dismissing that that most recent appeal from the company just last month. Um, so it's really it's not something that was kind of brought up and then resolved. This has been an ongoing discussion and issue, and as you say, it's got far-reaching implications. So the Asia Internet Coalition said um, in its submission to the New Zealand Parliament that the Spanish case requires private companies to decide if legal and truthful information should be removed from search results unless it's outweighed by the public interest. Um, and the industry group argues that that's vague and it's difficult um, as a kind of balancing test um, under continual review. Of course, Spain and the European Union are a long way from New Zealand. So the question is, do New Zealanders care about any of this? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question in and of itself from some of the things that I was looking at in this submission, because the industry group refers to a 2018 survey in which respondents were asked um, a number of questions. They very cleverly sort of highlighted specific points to as you would back up their argument. But the questions included, um, if a news organisation publishes a lawful and accurate story on its website, should New Zealanders always be able to find that story in a search engine? But then another question that was posed was, if someone has concerns about their personal reputation because of a lawful and accurate story published on a news website, should a search engine be required to move that st- to remove that story? So two sort of opposite ends of the spectrum there with those questions. And while 90% of respondents to the first question, or respondents to all of the questions, but respondents said yes to the first question of being able to find news stories, 45% of respondents said a search engine should also have to remove a lawful and accurate story if someone has reputational concerns. Uh, that's interesting. That That, that is, um, I, I suppose 45% is not a majority, but still does indicate a certain level of contradiction. Yeah, it's contradictory when you're thinking about the scale of the majority on the other question even though it isn't more than 50% on on that concern of wanting that information to be removed it's quite a substantial figure i think when you're when it's put against that 90% as well does any of this really matter or is it really just an academic discussion in the sense that does new zealand need the right to be forgotten uh, to have adequacy status with the eu well actually not at all um japan and the eu just this month agreed to recognize each other's data protection systems as equivalent without requiring japan to enact a right to be forgotten so there does seem to be room to maneuver it would appear or at least uh, at least something like that yeah, exactly that. I think it's a it's a big discussion because of the implications that it's had elsewhere. It's an emotive topic, I think, as well, when you're talking about individual privacy, but also in this day and age, people wanting access to factual information. Um, so there's a lot of different factors at play here when you're talking about something like the right to be forgotten. Um, but having said that, when it comes down to it in terms of policy and requirements, it I don't think, yeah. Evidently, it's not something that New Zealand would need, if you go off the example of Japan, to have its legislation be seen as equivalent to that of the EU.
But James, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been great discussing all of the courtroom dramas you were witness to last week. Yeah, it's been great fun. Thank you. All of the coverage we've discussed today should be on the same page where you found this podcast. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts for the latest from MLEX. And if you rate and review the podcast, it will make it easier for other people to find us. But for now, from James Paniki and me, Laurel Henning, goodbye. Goodbye.